I'm Drew Holmes. When I started learning to make music, I thought that the only way to have a career in the industry was as a performer. I could not have been more wrong. In more than 25 years in the music business, I've done many non-performing jobs from orchestra librarian to music store owner. But my experience is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm on a mission to explore the exciting and necessary jobs that make performances possible. Come with me as we go Beyond the Stage. Here we are and at Beyond the Stage with uh, Mr. Wes Kreitz, uh, who has so graciously agreed to be a guest on the podcast. Good day. And uh, w- rather than me talk about you, why don't you talk about you? <laughs> Wes, tell us who you are, what you do, and uh, why I know you're the ideal person to have on this show. Wow, no pressure on that one. <laughs> um, uh, my name, as Drew said, is Wes Kreitz. Um, I'm the uh, district sales manager for Yamaha Corporation, uh, band and orchestra division uh, for the Western United States. I've uh, been doing it for 15 years, um, and I think we'll go a little deeper into actually what I do, um, which is uh, one of the toughest things to describe to people, but I'll do my best. Uh, but I came to this, uh, to this industry through being a, a music educator, working for a retail uh, music store, as well as being a road rep for the music store. Um, so it just was a natural progression. Uh, my wife basically said, well, if you're going to travel a lot, why don't you get paid more? So, <laughs> so I left the dealership and I, I came to Yamaha. Um, and it's been a great 15 years. Yeah, and I've, I've had uh, Boomer Music. That's obviously how I first met you uh, for uh, 13 years now. So you came on just before uh, I took over here. You're, you're the only rep that I've known from Yamaha. Well, let's hope we keep it that way for a while, too. At least Yamaha would like to keep it that way for a while. Yeah, most definitely. Well, your side of the business, it tends to people, you know, kind of come in and out uh, for for some uh, companies and whatnot. And so you're you're a bit of a odd duck as far as that goes to to be sticking with uh, the same company for so long. So well, I'm fortunate and it's not just because I work for Yamaha that I'm saying this, but I'm fortunate that I do work for Yamaha. Um, I, I kind of compare working, getting a job with Yamaha to getting a uh, job in a symphony. Um, it's usually if anybody retires, moves or passes away. Um, I mean, we, it's amazing when we go to our annual meetings and they do recognitions and we've got people who've been with the company 45 years and it's groups of people. I mean, not just one or two people who've been here. Um, it, it actually, an interesting story is it took me seven years to get the job. Um, this was back, of course, prior to internet being very accessible. It was all dial up. So, um, <laughs> I knew that I, I wanted to try to get a job in the industry and I really leaned toward Yamaha. So once a week for seven years, I would go and check the Yamaha employment site, mm-hmm. um, to see if there was an opening. And, uh, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time and the opening in the Western United States came up. Um, so I was fortunate enough to interview um, I fooled them well enough to get to the second interview, <laughs> and tricked them well enough to actually get the job. Um, so it's been a great it's been a great trip. Yeah, well, and what you said about uh, symphony orchestras, uh, I've experienced that uh, you know, having done orchestra library work, which is even more specialized than even playing in an orchestra. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, folks get a job at a top tier uh, group. Uh, I came up with the Philadelphia Orchestra. That's where I learned how to do it, not mm-hmm. realizing at the time what a unique opportunity that was. In my defense, I grew up with the Boston Symphony. So when I, I they're like, oh, Philadelphia has an orchestra. Uh, oh, they do? I'm like, oh, oh that's kind of cool. You know, that, that, that's nice. Not realizing you know, it's a world-class ensemble, but you're 
you're absolutely right. People get the gig there and they just never leave because mm -hmm. why would you? I mean, you're you're performing at the highest possible level with the best possible colleagues, and right. why why would you give that up uh, without a really really good reason? So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's from both sides too. Is you know you get into the position. I really enjoy what I'm doing. And the company that I'm working for really appreciates what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what keeps you there. You know, it's not like you're just trying to trudge your way every day through. And I mean, yeah, there are the occasional days where it's like, you know, gosh, why did I choose this profession? But no, um, but that, those are few and far between. And that's usually just when you're on the road about 1,500 miles from home and it's like the 13th day. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's back way up um, for making music in the first place. What got you into music? Because obviously getting into this side of the industry and this business, it has to start there. Oh, absolutely. And it actually started when I was a kid. I was the, I'm the youngest of six um, and grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, two of my brothers played in their own rock bands while they were in high school. Were they any good? Oh, they were really good, yeah. Okay. As a matter of fact, they both went on. They, they did it for a living, and now they've both retired. Oh, great. Um, my oldest brother, Stan, was a, uh, a, a musician for Carnival Cruise Lines and just recently retired. But, um, you know, I was constantly surrounded by 45 records of every possible band you could think of. Um, everything from, you know, of course, the Beatles, mm -hmm. Beach Boys, um, to Strawberry Alarm Clock. And I think they had a stack of 45s of one-hit wonders. Um, but I would go see my brothers play, and I would enjoy it. Um, but I think my very first experience that I really, really liked was, and seriously, when I was a kid, and we had children's choir at church. Yeah. You know, there was just something cool about sitting up next to the pastor, mm -hmm. where everybody else was looking at him, and they, you know, I've always been kind of a ham, kind of a showman. Um, so being up front and being part of the quote-unquote show um, really was was just kind of exciting to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I could see how for, yeah, a, a small kid that yeah, you, you sit in the audience, you tend to get to see, I mean, audience, congregation, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and yep. then, yeah, getting to be a part of it, especially as the youngest. Uh, Correct, uh, yes. Um, but then as, as I moved on through, um, got to elementary school, and I'll tell you, one of the most big, the biggest musical influences to me was my elementary school band director. Uh, his name was Carson Ahrens. They called him John. Um, he used to call us cats and cool dudes, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, but there were a couple of things I liked about him. First of all, he didn't come across as a teacher. He came across as a, you know, what do you want to do today, and how can I help you make get better at it? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the attitude I went with. But and his selection of music, um, you know, in fourth grade, you know, we were playing, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Beethoven. Uh, it was just, and, and from the very get-go, and I think this is where, now I'm going to get kind of preachy, but I think this is where we kind of miss it a little bit in, in public music today, is that there's music beyond 1867 yeah. that the kids are really excited to play. And the kids can really learn their instrument and be excited about music history by playing modern music. And where that goes for me is, and I'm sorry I'm going to ramble a little bit, is I was in high school, and again, another great band director, name was John Banghart. <clears throat> we were playing records the one day, and one of my friends, who was just a real heavy metal guy, brought in this record, and it was, a, it was an instrumental, and it was a guitar. And I thought it was like the coolest song ever. And what it was, it was 
side B of Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Um, I can't remember which album it was, but he was doing um, Ode to Joy uh-huh. on electric guitar. And that was the first I had actually been kind of exposed to it, besides you had sing Ode to Joy in church, so you never realized it was a classical song. Um, but that that's what started expanding a little bit for me to wanting to start... Well, that Beethoven guy sounds pretty cool. I think I'll start listening to some of that stuff. Um, so, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm... No, no. Hey, you're the guest here. You, well, thank whatever you. direction it goes in, uh, we want to let it. But you're basically describing the plot of the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. Pretty much. I, I had, I, and the area where I grew up was a very rural area of Pennsylvania. And to tell you how rural it was, um, the population of the town was less than 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. But we had 1,200 kids in the high school, Oof. 9 through 12. Um, and the reason for that was, is not because everybody had 32 kids, <laughs> um, but because uh, it was the largest geographic uh, school district in the, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh-huh. because it was just so rural. Uh, I had ki- friends who would get on the bus at quarter after 6 in the morning and get home at quarter after 6 at night. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, again, too, seeing that dedication from some of my friends who were in sports and in music— that, you know, yeah, we have practice till 4.30. Oh, that means I won't get home till 7. That's okay. I'll get home at 7. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but it, it was a really small area. But, you know, to have a school with 1,200 kids in it and a marching band when my freshman year that had 116 kids wow. in it. So almost 10% of the high school population was in the marching band. And that had a lot to do with the leadership and, and just kind of the philosophy of the marching band. That's some pretty amazing recruiting. I mean, I, I know uh, teachers in this area would be very jealous to be getting you know the, that kind of numbers uh, on a voluntary basis. Oh, exactly. Especially when you know you, you know you're not going to get home till seven at night. Yeah. And, um, but it was it was just a, a great experience all the way around. What was your dream job as a child? What, what direction did you think you were going to go in, musical or otherwise? Yeah, that was you know I, I I've been thinking about that and I've come up with that a couple of times. And my dream job actually I wanted to be a farmer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My very first job when I was 13 years old um, was working in, a, in the cornfields as a detasseler. And in case anybody doesn't know what a detasseler is, um, hybrid corn. Okay, this is going to get really deep. That, that's fine. <clears throat> hybrid corn, you don't want the pollen from the tassels on the top to pollinate the same plant. Uh-huh. In other words, come down on the silk. So in the summertime, we would go through either walk, depending on the, the height of the corn, or ride. And six rows would have their tassels removed, and two rows would be left. And you'd go six, two, six, two. So you'd spend the whole summer just pulling these tassels out of the top of the corn so that the pollen from these two rows would be the pollen that was pollinating the rest of it. And you get this hybrid corn, whatever. I didn't know what hybrid <laughs> meant. But, um, but anyway, that, and, and I thought, thought it was cool because that's what we did all day long, and people made a living doing it. Huh. You know, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, but after about the second summer of doing that, and it was a very, very hot summer, um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, if I am going to be a farmer, I'm going to be the guy in charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was kind of my thing. I just It was being outside all the time as a kid and being able to get a job where you're paid to be outside doing what you like doing, you know? So what derailed you from being a farmer? That second summer of detail. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <in Lincoln. laughs> that, that's all it took. Well, and actually, in talking to, you know, in our area, um, most of the farms were family farms, uh-huh. you know, since, so having to try to start from square one would have been impossible for, like, me as a 15-year-old kid to get my head around. 
Right. You know, I so I have to buy a house. I have to buy how many acres of land? And, you know, I have to wait for who? Yeah. Um, so I started to just look toward... I always wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I was looking toward, you know, let's let's go to college, and if I still feel like that after college, then I'll take a look at it. And so where did you end up going to college? I went to Penn State. Of course you did. Yeah, go Lions. <laughs> um, I went to Penn State for music education. Why music ed? You know, that's a great story in itself. Um, I loved doing music all through high school and so on. Um, and, of course, I really enjoyed working with um, the kids – the, my, my co-band members and working with them and teaching the music and so on. Um, and it was one of those things where everybody's like, well, geez, if you like doing that so much, kind of like being a farmer, if you like doing <laughs> that so much, why don't you go to college and get the degree? Um, so I went for, for music education, and I really liked it. And I finished at Penn State, but I also still loved performing. Mm-hmm. So right after Penn State, I went to Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania to get my performance degree. I went two more years on trombone. I taught for several years, and we can go into the ins and outs of that, too. But, <laughs> um, but then I decided I really liked teaching elementary kids. Yeah. Because every now and then, as the high school director, I would go down and work with the elementary kids. And it was very, very cool. But the one thing I heard a lot from elementary teachers, and it's kind of like you, you know as a parent. People will say it's like being the grandparent. You get to come in, spoil the kids, and go home, all uh-huh. right? You're not there for them the whole time. Um, so after a few years, I actually went to back to Concordia University because we had moved to California and went back to school and got my elementary ed degree, um, you know, just so I could walk in their shoes. Sure. Um, and the interesting part about Concordia is even though I had been teaching for a while, um, they still had me student teach. <laughs> How'd that go? Oh, it was awesome. It was absolutely great to, to walk into an elementary classroom and just be under the tutelage of the two teachers I had were fabulous. They both had been teaching for like, I think, 20 plus years. Um, so we had a chance to swap war stories. And each one of us would sit there and say, I would never do high school. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do elementary school, but at least I'm, you know, uh, walking the walk. Uh, but it was a great experience. Well, and that's been my experience inter- uh, interacting with teachers and whatnot, because I uh, do ed rep stuff uh, here in uh, the greater Fort Collins area, in Loveland mm-hmm. specifically. And it takes a certain personality to do the different uh, grade levels. I kind of look at it like, you know, some people are just uniquely suited to be high school directors, and right. some are really uniquely suited to be elementary, and middle school is doing God's work. I don't know how they can do it. Exactly. And that's why after I went to Concordia and went through the student teaching, I was like, I went back to some of those teachers that I was I was talking to, and I said, you're absolutely right. I am the grandparent who comes in and spoils kids, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll take it. Um, but, uh, no, it was, it was just a great time. What pulled you off of that path then from, uh, teaching? I mean, if elementary wasn't where it was going to be, then why not a different grade level? Well, I actually went back and, and started teaching again at the high school level uh-huh. in band. Um, but it got to the point where, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this is, um, I decided it was time to spend a little more time with my own kids mm-hmm. than with other people's kids, um, at the high school level. Um, you know, you've got the before, and I know if there are directors listening, um, you've got the before school, the after school, the Friday night football games, the Saturday performances, if you're going out to do Saturday performances. Right. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of folks are like, but Wes, you do so much traveling in your current job. And and I, and I explained that I really feel like I'm spending more time with my family when I'm home 
now than when, quote unquote, I'm home every day. Oh, yeah. Because you leave it, you know, quarter after six in the morning, you'd get home maybe seven or eight o'clock at night. You know, your kids were sleeping when you left and they're in bed when you got home. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a little, I was fortunate um, that my, my kids weren't early sleepers, so they would be awake when I'd get home yeah. sometimes. And I didn't have a lot of late night stuff that I had to do, but it just got to the point where, you know, this, this monster could eat me up pretty easily if I let it. Oh, and, and burnout's a real thing. Exactly. But what you're describing also uh, in your current job, uh, it's, yeah, you're traveling and you're away from home a lot, but you can direct it a little bit more than when you're right. conforming to a school year schedule and a class schedule and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, setting your own appointments and whatnot. I mean, you, when you were saying that, it made me think of what I've done um, by not having an office here at the store anymore. Exactly. And I'm working from home a lot more. And that was a choice made before COVID. And then it turned out to be a really good choice uh, during. <laughs> but uh, what I've been starting to do is leave early after, early to mid-afternoon, you know, about two o'clock, three o'clock, that kind of thing. And then I get to spend time with the boys, you know, get Timmy home from school, that kind of stuff. And then between, I, I jokingly say, but it's true, between nine and midnight is when I get most of my work done. Oh, exactly. And and that's that's where, where I'm at with you too when I'm traveling or so on. Um, I'll start, actually start doing emails and stuff uh, around 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And there's, I'll tell you what, there's nothing more liberating than sending emails that don't receive replies right away. That going to bed with an empty inbox yeah. is the greatest thing in the world. And it doesn't happen unless I'm traveling or I'm working from home. Um, and, and I feel like I can focus a little bit more. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah, it's a matter of being able to set aside the time and to be uninterrupted and that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. yeah, like when I'm here on site at the store, I've got different responsibilities and then, you know, family time, I try to keep family time. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, the phone's always on. Um, indeed. Cause you never know when something's going to crop up and it does. And it and it's interesting because um, you know some presentations that I've done and some conversations I've had with people they're like well why don't you you know turn your phone off or something well I you know I do it's around ten o'clock at night you know mm-hmm. I turn the ringer off but it's and you're I'm I'm in a profession you're in a profession where it really deals with creating relationships yes and it gets beyond the point especially when you've been in the same area for fifteen years these people aren't my clients these aren't customers. These are people I've developed a relationship with, and we depend on each other to help each other in their job. So for me to not answer the phone from someone who is probably, you know, there's a reason they're calling me 730 at night, and it's not just to say, hey, Wes, did you have a good day? Right. Something happened, and they need to either talk something over with me, or they need something. And, you know, that's, that's where I'm at right now, and that's really what I love about the job. Well, and to illustrate that point uh, beautifully with what cropped up recently in your life, uh, Saturday morning, I'm out mowing the lawn. I've got my headset on because I'm listening to podcasts and that sort of stuff. And phone rings. Caller ID says it's you. So I'm thinking, why is Wes calling me at 9.30, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning? And I answer, say, hey, Wes, what's up? And it was Amy. Correct. Yep. And uh, if you want to take the story from there, because you understand what, what that call was all about. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, we had... Uh, we had had some, and I won't give the brand, we had had some pizza the night before, <laughs> and uh, got up early Saturday morning, um, thought I had heartburn, and about half an hour after I was up, said to my wife, you know, I think this is more than heartburn, I think you need to take me to the hospital, and um, I ended up having a heart attack. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, I'm doing great now, doing fine now, but you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because 
I mean, for you, it, and it speaks to the relationship. For you to take, first of all, take the call, and second of all, my wife knowing, you know, I really think I need to call Drew. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's that's just part of the whole, and not to sound, you know, schlocky or anything, but, you know, we're friends, we're family, we talk about each other's kids. We t- I think we talk about each other's kids about as much as we talk about your business. Probably, yeah. And because They're more interesting. And they're intertwined. <laughs> you know, you, you, what you do during the day, real, you're doing so you can support what you want to do in the evening. Oh, exactly. It, yeah. It's... You know, it, we're building a life and a lifestyle, and mm-hmm. if you don't have that, then what's it all for? Exactly. I, mean, I, I love the work that I do and uh, all of that, but th- there has to be more to it than just that. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick time out to hear from our sponsors. Beyond the Stage is proudly sponsored by Boomer Music Company, Northern Colorado's band and orchestra experts since 1976. If you need instrument rentals, repairs, sheet music, or accessories, Boomer Music has you covered. Come to our Fort Collins showroom or visit us online at www.boomermusiccompany.com. Thepodcastingstore.com is your one-stop shop for all things podcasting and remote learning and a proud sponsor of Beyond the Stage. Whether you're a novice remote teacher or a veteran podcaster, we have the gear and the knowledge to take your content to the next level to better engage your audience. Check us out at www.thepodcastingstore.com and see what solutions we have for you. Now, let's continue our journey beyond the stage. And I tried, when I came out of college, you know, I tried the whole performing thing, you know, because I wanted to be a performer. How'd that Um, go? (laughs) It actually went well, but it got to the point where it was too much like work. Mm-hmm. It was too much like a job. Yeah. Um, although I enjoyed what I was doing, you know, some days you don't want to practice, but you oh, got to yeah. practice. Um, so it got to the point where performing wasn't that much fun for me. Um, and a lot of people will say, oh, so the old saying is, if you can't do, teach. No, <laughs> that's not where it came in. Is I actually sat down and, and thought to myself, what do I enjoy most in life? If I could sit down and put together a job that I could make a living at, um, what would that job be? What would I be doing? And it wasn't so much performing or teaching. Um, I wanted to make sure I stayed close to music because music is just very strong for me. And it, I finally came around to what do I like doing? I like helping people enjoy things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bottom line. No matter what profession I would take, if I could help people enjoy something. And so I thought, well, I wonder if there's a job out there helping people enjoy their love of music even more. Um, And that was teaching. But teaching was teaching the mechanics and teaching some appreciation, but in a short amount of time. So the the job with Yamaha uh, came at at the perfect time. Um, because Yamaha is all about supporting education, supporting people's love of making music. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my job, is helping people find a better way to enjoy listening to or playing music. Um, and that's why I think I really enjoy my job. You know, so a lot of people are like, well, there are only a few jobs in music. You know, you can be a teacher, you can be a performer. Um, Dr. Dave Gerhardt, who actually works for Yamaha, um, he's a, he's a, he teaches at uh, Cal State Long Beach. Um, he came up with a list 
and I think he's still going, of over 160 different jobs, quote-unquote, in the music industry. Sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's if you're, you can make a living doing what you love, but it doesn't have to be these spelled out six or seven outlets. Um, and I think the main thing is, like I said, for me is, yeah, I enjoy music, but what do I really enjoy doing? If I could get paid, what? And it's helping people. You know, and so I could have been a nurse. I could have been a doctor. Um, but there was, a, there was actually a job out there helping people enjoy making music. Um, and I talk to um, college kids all the time. Um, one of the really cool things I really want to start in, investigating now is music therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them going out and helping at um, uh, rest homes. Yes. And for older people and for even younger kids. Um, but again, it's something you love doing, helping people and using music to do it. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, we've had uh, a bunch of people who have worked uh, at the store that have studied music therapy and either gone on to do that or uh, the uh, most common thing that I've seen them do is uh, like uh, group kid music lessons, like music together. Oh, yeah. And kinder music, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's such a natural transition. And, but what you're talking about with the, uh, the relationships and all that, I mean, that I, I always say our unofficial, um, mission around here is we are trying to help people love music through making music. And that's exactly it. And, yeah. And, and that's all it comes down to is that's what we do. And if we keep that in mind and keep, you know, the relationship in mind that that's, you know, we're, we're not trying to sell people stuff. And that, that's one of the things I love about uh, dealing with you uh, and Yamaha is, yeah, obviously it's a product-based business and mm-hmm. that, that enters into it. I mean, we need stuff, you sell stuff, you know, sell me some stuff. <laughs> but it's, it, there's more to it than that. Again, there always has to be. And, and the nice thing is, is, and you do a great job of it here at the store, between your staff and the products that you carry is, and for me, working for Yamaha, and not just to plug Yamaha, but when your conversations aren't based on trying to convince somebody to buy your brand, and the conversations can go more toward, well, what do you do for a living? What do you like doing? Yeah. What kind of music do you want to play? Um, you know, you get to have conversations beyond and beyond being a used car salesman. You know, right? um, hey, let me go talk to my manager about this. But if I can get you into this baby today, are you ready to go home and play? <laughs> well, and that, and that goes to a deeper philosophy about sales that I have is that it's it's not about that. It, it's a collaborative process, mm-hmm. and when you just feel skeevy about it, we're having some plumbing done at the house and have encountered this. Unfortunately, that's a industry that you know not everyone's bad. But you know, when they start asking you questions, kind of trying to back you into corner to say yes, I mean, who is that helping? Mm-hmm. That that's not that's not a collaborative problem solving process. That's that's gotcha. And oh, you're absolutely right. And and I I constantly explain to people that um, store owners, salespeople, when I'm talking to them, when a customer comes into your store or they come to a rental meeting or they call you on the phone or they go to your website or whatever, um, they're only looking for one of two things. And I, I've distilled it down to this. It may seem oversimplified, but they're either looking for information or validation. Absolutely. That's it. They're either looking for information because they've got some curiosity or they've got some cur- they've got some information. They want you to validate that the information they have is, you know, pretty much correct and then tell them you have something that you can 
provide for them that will fill their need. That's it. That's all customers are. That's all people are. That's all human beings are. You either want information or validation. And if you can get one of the two, they both work hand in hand. Yeah. Well, and that's what I say, you know, not to get too far into the business side of things, Mm -hmm. but um, what I love about what we do is customers are pre-qualifying themselves before they come in. Yeah, they have a vague concept of what we do, uh, an idea of a need that they have, and the thought that we could probably help them meet it. That's awesome. Exactly. I, yeah. I love that because then all we need to do is identify what the need is, come up with the solution, and then pair the solution with the, with the customer. And sometimes we don't have the solution. That's okay. We're still trying to solve the problem and help people love music. And if we do that, then we've, we've done our jobs. Oh, and if they walk away saying, you know, that was a great experience. Whether they bought something or not, whether it was something you had or not, um, they're, they're yours for life. And not just a customer, but they're going to remember the experience. They're going to remember that, you know, I walked in there, they didn't talk down to me. Um, and you know what? I walked out of there knowing a bit more about the direction I needed to go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and to reverse back to another point you were talking about with mm-hmm. all the different careers in music, um, <clears throat> when I was first starting to learn how to do library work, I did an honors thesis in college on the classification of the librarian within the orchestra, whether the librarian should be considered a staff member or a member of the orchestra. Because at the time, that was, I don't want to say a hot button topic. Cause, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. But um, you have to be a musician to do that job but you don't perform. So you're a non-performing member of the ensemble. And so the the big orchestras like uh, Boston, Philadelphia, New York will list in the program the librarians along with the orchestra, um, along with the performing members in in the program. That pages. makes sense. Uh, and they're part of the union and all that kind of stuff. But the smaller orchestras, uh, that that's where it gets a little tricky. But um, his name was David Mills. He was at the North Carolina Symphony at the time. And uh, he had the best quote talking about um, the, the whole thing with the support system and the different jobs. See, I, I was really getting around to a point here. There you go. But yeah. he, he says, <laughs> it's, um, it's like an iceberg. And what you see on the stage is just the, the tip of that iceberg that's peeking above the water. And you get the little penguins and all that stuff. But under, under the water is where everything happens. And that's everything that's supporting it and everything that's building it and making it what it is. And so, again, me coming from the orchestra world, I mean, you see the, the administration, you've got your marketing people and your development department and your customer support people and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's so many things that go into that that are you know, beyond the stage. Uh, there you go. And yeah. so that, that's um, the thought process. The, the image that's always stuck in my head is of, uh, of that iceberg and just knowing that what you are seeing up there performing is just such a small part of what goes into it. And there's so many more opportunities beyond just that. Oh, exactly. And it's in, in this side of the music industry, very, very similar. Everything from research and development to the manufacturing, to the marketing, to shipping, which nowadays is, is a hot button topic as well. It's a challenge. It is. There you go. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, there are thousands of people who helped me, just this one guy, do a better job. Um, And uh, I I think that's, uh, there's a a statistic out there that one out of every four musical products sold in the world is manufactured by Yamaha. Really? Whether it's a musical instrument, stereo equipment, piano, keyboard. um, Reed organ? Reed organ, <laughs> <laughs> organ. Uh, recorder, um, but it's it's amazing, you know, and and not to sound corny, but you know that that's a, a big responsibility to carry, um, you know, the, a company that has spent that much time, and and you as a business owner yourself, you know, building a brand, 
Um, and that's a lot of what I talk about when I talk to uh, music educators or future music educators is what's your brand? You know, uh, the, the elevator speech that uh-huh. they talk about in business, or they call it the three foot circle. Um, if, uh, if you had one minute to explain to somebody what you do for a living, and that's not, well, I show up in the morning and I unlock the door. No. What do you do for a living that would impress this person in one minute? Um, and what's your brand? What do you want to be known for? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and most people would, you know, yeah, I'm the Yamaha guy, but people who know me know that I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a good friend, and so on. And, you know, so if people, if you were to, people were to ask, you know, well, you know, what can you tell me about Wes? Well, he's a, he's a good, hopefully they would say, <laughs> um, he's a good guy, he's got a great family, um, and he really cares about what he does. And secondary would be like, oh, yeah, and I think he sells instruments too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're spot on. I mean, in this um, hyper-connected world uh, with social media and whatnot, uh, everybody has a personal brand. And a brand is, you know, very simply put, obviously I think about this stuff a lot, is a mm-hmm. unique promise of value. So what do you offer with your brand, with yourself, with what you do and what you are that they can't get somewhere else? And that's a great point with you know, Yamaha Musical Instruments, for example. I mean, yes, they're different than other manufacturers, but a musical instrument is at its core commodity. I mean, a, yes. trum- a trumpet yep. is a trumpet. Mm-hmm. And you know, one you know, there'll be slight differences, but one functions the same as another. So what is the unique promise of value that you get from, you know, from that particular brand? And that's where the rubber meets the road. Exactly, exactly. And, and you're absolutely right, too, with, with social media and so on. Um, it's becoming more and more difficult, especially for individuals, um, to develop and control your brand. Um, you know, you don't want your brand to be controlled by others. Um, so social media is a very, very difficult area. Um, you know, I always say it's kind of like being a carpenter. They say measure three times, cut once. Yeah. Well, before you hit send or before you hit post, let it sit for a day or so. Um, read through it a couple of more times mm-hmm. before you hit, because it's, it's permanent. It's there forever. Um, so does this represent me as an individual? Does this represent, you know, my values and my philosophy? Then hit send or yeah. hit post. What would your mother think if she saw this? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that, that's a good point, too. I mean, uh, I won't go into particulars, but yeah, we had a thing here uh, that cropped up at the end of last week. And uh, I was pretty reactionary about it. And uh, Ward said, yeah, 24-hour rule. Sit on it for that. Maybe 48. And you know what? It resolved itself and resolved itself in exactly the way that I wanted it to. So sometimes doing nothing is the best way to go, or at the very least, give yourself time to cool off. Yeah. And, you know, my, if, I'm sure my wife will listen to this, so I'll, I'll throw it out <laughs> to her. Um, you know, and it is, it, it's always, you know, why do you want to respond or react? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I need to respond or react because, you know, somebody said something to me. But why? What is your what? How do you want that person to feel mm-hmm. after you've responded to them? And if you're responding to them just because you want to do a beat down, or say I was right, everybody knows I'm always right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't, I don't need to mention that. But it it is. It's just a very, and that's why the industry we're in, the business we're in, um, the living we make is so relationship based. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, every, you know, you've got close friends and every now and then you guys can have, you know, some get at odds, but at the end you're friends. But if this is someone you don't know, you know, you might never see them again yeah. if you react wrong. 
Um, but I know pretty deep there. But again, it, I think it's, it's in every industry. I don't care what you do for a living. It's how you treat the people. You know, just to, to distill it all down, though, is find something you enjoy. Find something you love doing. And then find something that you love as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And if you can meld those two things together into a way to make a living, um, then you've been successful. You've absolutely been successful. And that's kind of what I was saying is um, I love music. I love helping people. I was able to put those two things together. Teaching didn't work out, and then you ended up with Yamaha. There was an in-between step in there. Yeah, actually, when I was a teacher, and it was kind of cool, um, and, and you'll love this, so make sure you don't edit this out. Um, when I was a teacher, we had, I had a road rep that came from a local store who would visit me, um, and you know he was great. He was super helpful, helped support me in my program and so on. Um, so when I, when I stepped down from teaching, I applied for a job at that store. And I was a road rep for them for nine years. Are you at liberty to say the store? Yeah, yeah. The name of the store is Robert M. Sides Music Center in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Um, the owner at the time, and actually family owned a store. Uh, the owner at the time is Hugh Sides or Pete Sides. Um, and actually one of the most wonderful people I've ever worked for. And and he he really helped mold me in the fact that we would have deep conversations. We would disagree. We wouldn't disagree. Um but at the end of the day, we were both there to do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of helped me develop my philosophy because the bottom line was is they just wanted to help people and enjoy music too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, I did that for nine years. And actually, you know, it had the Yamaha gig not popped up, I'd probably still be doing it uh, just because I enjoyed it that much. Uh, it was great because I had a chance to go out and visit with educators that, you know, I worked with um, pre- in the previous oh, life. Oh, yeah. Um, but it was, it was just absolutely a great, great experience. Um, you know, because it's, it's, it's a real humbling experience when you've got 15 minutes of an educator's time at a specific time on a specific day Mm -hmm. in between classes. Yes. Um, and that's where I became very cognizant of the value of time. You know, if you're giving me, if you're 15 minutes, the least I can do is be prepared and have something of value for you. Um, so I never showed up to an appointment, and I still try to use this today, without having some sort of valuable piece of information, whether it's something I saw in a trade magazine, an education journal, um, something I saw on a local school website. Um, and it was always, you know, even if I didn't have anything, if I wasn't dropping off any repairs, or if I didn't, you know, we weren't actually having a sale or anything like that, it was just ha- having 15 minutes of conversation with someone who spends all day giving so much information um, and in, in a such a compressed schedule like a school day. Um, and just, you know, hopefully after that 15 minutes, they were like, man, I'm, you know what? I'm glad Wes was here. I can't wait till he comes next week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Stage. If you have ideas for future episodes or work in a non-performing role in the music industry and would like to tell your story, please contact me at drew at boomermusiccompany.com. I'm Drew Holmes. Thank you for listening as we explore careers in music beyond the stage.